Good morning and welcome to the Cato Institute. My name is Mustafa Akyol. I'm a senior fellow here since last summer uh, at the Center for uh, Global Liberty and Prosperity as a, uh, focusing on Islam, modernity, and public policy. Uh, and I'm proud today to moderate this policy forum titled The New Gulag Archipelago, How China Re-Educates the Uyghurs and Why the World Should Be Alarmed. I'll introduce our speakers in a second, but I want to share a few thoughts. Uh, in the past few decades, political violence in the name of Islam uh, has certainly become a deem of global concern, and rightly so. But there is the other side of this coin. And there, you see authoritarian regimes or militant groups using Islamic extremism as a pretext to justify their own campaigns of violence or persecution. Uh, this pretext was used to justify genocide against Muslims in Bosnia in the 90s, or more recently in Myanmar. Uh, it is sometimes used to crack down on dissidents in authoritarian regimes in the Arab world. It is even used, as we have seen in the past few weeks, to kill critical journalists and cut their bodies into pieces. And a similar travesty has been going on in China for quite a while in the Xinjiang region. Using the handful of extremists among Uyghurs, a Turkic-speaking Muslim minority, the Beijing government has embarked on a crusade to erase the identity, religion, culture, and language of these people. To this end, up to a million people have been sent to re-education camps, reminiscent of the horrific Gulag Archipelago of the Soviet Union as we know from the works of the great Russian author, Alexander Solzhenitsyn. Now, here at Cato, we are concerned about all such attacks on human rights and human freedom around the world. And we believe that the persecution of Uyghurs is not just one dramatic case today, but it can be a sign of worse things to come. Because the Beijing government, Beijing government is testing on the Uyghurs some new technologies of social control that can be exported to other authoritarian regimes around the world that are eager to spy on their citizens and you know, crack down on their dissidents. So today, we will listen to three experts on this crisis who have all done remarkable service in raising more awareness about it and who have kindly accepted our invitation. Uh, our first panelist is Nuri Turkal, who's an ethnic Uyghur himself, an American citizen who leads the Uyghur Human Rights Project based in Washington, DC. Our second panelist is, is Sigal Samuel, the religion editor at the Atlantic Magazine, who has been one of the leading Western journalists to cover and highlight this crisis. And our final panelist is Sophia Richardson, the China director at the Human Rights Watch, who has been relentlessly campaigning for a freer China for the Uyghurs and for all. Now, Let's begin with you, Nuri. Please help us understand what is going on in Xinjiang and, and even share your personal story because I think it can help us understand uh, the, the human cost of, this, of this, I mean, this crisis. Please. Thank you, Mustafa. I'd like to thank the Cato Institute and my fellow panelists and the audience for coming to this important forum. My own life tells the story of Chinese state policy towards the Uyghurs. 
I was born in a re-education camp during the Cultural Revolution. My father was in a labor camp when my pregnant mother was taken into a re-education camp, which is very similar to the ones, very similar to the ones today. My mother suffered a tremendous hardship, and when I was born, people thought that I was not going to be, I was not going to be able to make it. After the end of the Cultural Revolution, the Uyghur experience, Uyghurs experienced what is now considered as the Cultural Revival period under the People's Republic of China. The late 1980s and the 90s, when I was in high school and university, were the time of relative freedom and economic uh, uh, progress. Many people were released from prison and labor camps. The universities were reopened. The Uyghur cultural institutions were gradually reestablished. I remember going to the religious services with my father on important Islamic holidays. As a child, uh, I felt strongly the sense of relief and joy being able to have a normal community life. The cultural revival period lasted until the Tiananmen Massacre in 1989, which led to a wave of political re retrenchment. The collapse of the Soviet Union in 1991 brought a completely new political environment for Uyghurs, which lasted through the 90s. The government launched repeated waves of repression called strike hard campaigns. The stated goal was to suppress Uyghur separatist ideologies and tendencies. The countless scholars, religious leaders, community leaders, poets, musicians, students, and ordinary people lost their jobs or were held, held away to prison camps. Their only crimes was to express their distinct Uyghur identity practice their religion, and protest unjust policies and corrupt abuses by the Chinese officials. The 9-11 attacks assured into a new era uh, uh, that resulted in more restrictions for the Uyghur people. The government propaganda turned, turned on a dime. Suddenly, the Chinese government declared to the world that China, too, is China also a, a victim of international terrorism. Conflict between villages and local officials were no longer evidence of so-called separatism, uh, according to the Chinese government. Instead, they were evidenced that as an international ter terrorism. According to the Xinjiang uh, Daily, 18,000 18, Uyghurs were detained on national security charges in 2005 alone. Congressional testimony in 2006 described this as an astonishing figure. Forced assimilation policies were already in place. Popular singers, poets were imprisoned for expressing a yearning for freedom of expression, learning, and culture. The language, the Uyghur language, was incre incrementally banned in schools, and tens of thousands of Uyghur middle schoolers were sent to the mandatory boarding schools, including those in Xinjiang, uh, in Inner China. This period lasted from 2001 through the, uh, the Urumqi unrest of uh, July 5, 2009. After the July 5 unrest, the full scale of militarization of control uh, take place, took place. The internet was completely blocked through the region for full 10 months. As in Tibet, the vast number of armed security forces were stationed in cities and villages. By 2013, many parts of East Turkestan already resembled a country under military occupation. There were armed checkpoints along the highways and the entrance to towns and villages. Xi Jinping's visit to Urumqi uh, in May 2014 was a turning point. During his visit, he was reportedly expressed his dissatisfaction and disappointment that the Uyghurs are still not being fully sinified or uh, assimilated. 
And there was a bombing at the train station on the day that he was leaving that resulted in three people's, uh, uh, three deaths and 19, uh, close to 70 people being injured. The actual circumstances of that attack remain unknown. At that point, uh, Xi Jinping declared that the government would adopt a strike first campaign to secure, uh, achieve security in the region. Government began to rapid building up even tighter system of surveillance and control. This involved technology like surveillance cameras, mandatory monitoring apps on every phone, and also a system of informants in work in every work unit and village. Think of it as East Germany Stasi on steroids. And you will have some picture of the life of the Uyghurs under this high-tech police state. So this brings us to today. Here's a story of a story of one woman who was taken into mass detention camp. She was traveling in China on an overseas passport was detained uh, when, he, when she arrived to East Turkestan. She was interned in camp. Uh, she was interned in camp with her one-year-old baby. In the camp, she was physically humiliated, repeatedly forced to denounce any belief in Islam, which was classified as a sign of her sympathy for terrorism. She was coerced to repeat sentences such as, I deserve punishment for not understanding that Xi Jinping and Communist Party can help me. There's no God, and I don't believe in God. I believe in the Communist Party. Anyone who did not say these slogans correctly in Chinese were beaten or put in the tiger chair. It is plain that the Chinese government is lying when it says that these facilities are, uh, are quote, vocational training centers, unquote. In fact, the camps are designed to break the Uyghurs' ethnic religious identity once and for, for all after years of repressive policies. Georgetown University professor Jim Millward put it best, quote, cultural cleansing in, is Beijing's attempt to find a final solution to the Xinjiang problem. It has been 20 months since we started to learn about the mass internment camps. Determined journalists, human rights activists, and academics have done heroic work to uncover these modern day concentration camps. They have used internet searches of government construction, construction bits, analysis of satellite images, and interviews with Uyghurs and other Turkic Muslims to expose vast network of camps across the region that holds up to a million uh, Uyghur people and other Turkic Muslims. Members of the part, uh, Bipartisan Congressional Executive Committee on China, under the leadership of uh, Senator Marco Rubio, are very clear on what's happening. He said, Quote, this may be the largest incarceration, incarceration of an ethnic minority population since World War II. And Congressman Smith, which, who co-chairs the CECC, said, many considered what is happening in Xinjiang to be a crime against humanity. At 3 p.m. today, for the first time, Congress will hear a testimony from a camp survivor. Her name is Mihrigil Tursun, and she's a 29-year-old mother. Mihrigul was detained in the camp for 10 months. When she spoke at the National uh, Press Club this past, uh, uh, on Monday, the audience was literally in tears hearing her story. She gone, uh, she gone abroad to study English in Egypt and gave birth to triplets in March 2015. She came home to have her parents uh, or family to take care of her uh, children when she got when she arrived at the passport control in Urumqi airport, she was taken in for questioning and her babies were taken away. She did not see them again for three months. 
all had trouble, uh, tr uh, terrible health conditions, and her oldest boy died uh, uh, one day after she was released. Over the next three years, um, she was detained in, uh, three separate times and endured beating and many other unspeakable forms of torture. She begged, for the, begged the guards to kill her. By miracle, she and her two children have managed to arrive to the United States, and, but she still lives in fear because of her family, remaining family in China. Let's talk about the impact that the Uyghur crisis um, on the Uyghur diaspora communities around the world. The Uyghurs, including myself, uh, suffer crippling anxiety and guilt. We are terrified we will never see our loved ones again. We have nightmares about what our family members, former schoolmates, classmates, friends are going through on a daily basis. The Chinese government has exported its campaign of total destruction of the Uyghur people by pursuing them abroad. In July 2017, the Chinese government suddenly put tremendous pressure on various communities around the world and demanding Uyghur students to return to China. We have names of 48 students that the Egyptian government depart, deported to China, and we have, we have no information after they've been deported. Even the democratic countries, the Chinese harassed, and in, even in a democratic countries like the United States, the Chinese government harassed, threatened, and coerced Uyghurs. They received demands to return home. If they don't want, their family members will be locked up in, camp, in the camps. They received demands to spy on the democ democracy movement in exile. Hundreds of Uyghurs have been testifying uh, and, and testifying to receive phone calls, text messages, uh, simply saying, think about your responsibility and think about your family at home. I'd like to conclude by stating that the Uyghurs are, in the cana are canaries in the cold mine. It is time for action. And the, we cannot simply go on in business as usual mode. The liberal democracies must speak out. And with the forms like this, with the educational outreach, I hope eventually will some serious policy actions, governmental actions will be taken to rectify the situation. Thank you. Thank you so much. <clears throat> <clears throat> Thank you so much, Nuri. I'll come back to you about what should be done uh, before opening up to the panel. But uh, Sigal, so please, uh, you have written impressive articles in The Atlantic uh, where you're the religion editor on what is going on. And you have also written about the technology of this, which is now actually attracting countries like Venezuela. <laughs> like, oh, Chinese are developing these amazing devices to you know, spy on people. Um, can you help us understand from that perspective the meaning of this crisis? Yes. Um, can you all hear me all right? Not quite? How's that? Great. Um, so thank you, Mustafa, and thank you all for taking the time to be here. Uh, and most importantly, I want to say thank you to the Uyghurs, both in this room and, uh, and elsewhere, who have really courageously spoken to journalists like me who've shared painful stories at great personal risk so that the rest of us can learn about what's happening in China and hopefully take meaningful action. So as religion editor at The Atlantic, I became convinced several months ago that China's mass detention of the Uyghurs is the biggest religion story of the year. And in terms of just sheer numbers of people affected, it's arguably the biggest story, period. I found myself thinking, how is it possible that in the year 2018, 
An estimated one million Muslims are being held in internment camps, and people aren't speaking out about this en masse every single day. Uh, personally, I grew up in the Jewish community where stories of the Holocaust permeated my childhood. I learned about the millions who were taken to Nazi concentration camps. I listened to my great uncle's story of how he escaped from Auschwitz. Um, over and over, I heard the message, never again. And so when I started seeing the information that was trickling out of China about what was happening in Xinjiang, I knew it was my responsibility as a journalist to help tell this story. And as I've reported on it, what has struck me most is that Chinese repression of the Uyghurs is taking place in these ever-widening circles. So picture a stone that's thrown into a lake and the concentric circles that ripple out from that initial point of impact. So first and foremost, China's persecution uh, is harming the Uyghurs in Xinjiang who are taken to internment camps. They're the initial point of impact. Um, but for every Uyghur inmate, and let's remember there are an estimated one million of them, there are multiple children and spouses and family members in China who are affected every day by their absence. So they're the first circle. Um, and then there are their relatives abroad who, as Nuri mentioned, are carrying this huge psychological burden every day as they worry about their loved ones back home and are trying, you know, desperately to find out what's happening to them. So they're the second circle. And finally, there are the many countries to which China's totalitarian technology is spreading, is being exported, um, because the same technologies that China is testing out on Uyghurs in Xinjiang are now being exported to other places, as Mustafa mentioned, where once they reach there, they will again be like stones thrown into water, impacting many more millions of people in these concentric circles. So I want to focus on these three ripple effects, even though there are plenty of others that we can and should talk about. Um, so first, the children of inmates in Xinjiang. Uh, when parents are sent to the camps, what happens to the kids? So often, the children are taken away to state-run orphanages. Uh, by the way, Emily Feng has done an amazing job reporting on this in the Financial Times. If you haven't read her articles there, I highly recommend them. Um, Xinjiang has been building recently dozens of massive new orphanages. So just to give you a sense of the scale we're talking about here, last year, 18 popped up in a single county in the city of Kashgar alone. And a worker at one of the orphanages said that the conditions at these institutions are so terrible that children there aged six months to 12 years are, quote, locked up like farm animals in a shed. Strikingly, the kids there are being taken away even when they have grandparents and other family members who are begging to be able to keep them. And once they're under state care, they're totally isolated from their relatives, their culture, Islamic religion, the Uyghur language. They're taught only Chinese language and culture. So some experts I've spoken to tell me, you know, these are assimilationist policies that China is using to actively rewire the identity of an entire generation of Uyghurs. I'm sure you all remember that here in the U.S. this summer, there was a huge outcry when President Trump's family separation policy became uh, the, the focus of national attention. I think what we need to internalize on a deep emotional level now is that in China, we're seeing family separation on a massive scale, and it's impacting many, many thousands of children. 
So if we zoom out a bit now to the second circle that I talked about, the Uyghurs living abroad, it's clear that they're also being really deeply affected by the internment of their relatives in Xinjiang. So as Nori mentioned, they're suffering from insomnia, depression, anxiety, and paranoia. And I'll give just a couple of examples. Um, Murat Hari Uyghur is a doctor in his 30s who moved to Finland in 2010. He told me that he found out through coded messages from his relatives back home that both of his parents are currently in the camps. But when he makes phone calls to China to try to eke out more information, no one will tell him his parents' exact location or even whether they're alive or dead. He suffers from recurrent panic attacks and he finds himself prone to feelings of powerlessness and anger and exhaustion. Throughout our phone conversation, I could tell that he was doing his best to sound upbeat, but at the end of it, he told me very honestly, I try to be normal, but I have a psychological problem now, which was really heartbreaking to hear. Um, another Uyghur, a 24-year-old grad student studying here in the U.S., told me that it's been more than 200 days since he's been able to contact his dad in Xinjiang. He keeps track of each day on a, a board that's tacked to his bedroom wall. And when I asked him why he believes that his dad is in an, in an internment camp, he replied without any doubt whatsoever. He said, it's because I'm here studying in a foreign country in the U.S. Like a lot of Uyghurs abroad, he feels this pervasive sense of guilt because he knows that China treats any Uyghurs who's traveled internationally and suspicious. So his own family members are probably viewed as even more suspicious in part because he's here in the U.S., if you haven't personally experienced something like this, take a minute to really imagine it. Like, imagine not being able to find out where your parents are or even if they're alive or dead. Imagine feeling that your parents are in an internment camp in part because you decided to leave home to study. How would you cope with that kind of anxiety and guilt on a daily basis? And finally... As Mustafa said, I want to say a few words about the third circle that I mentioned, the countries to which China is exporting its totalitarian technology. So some of the new tech that the Chinese authorities are trying out on Uyghur Muslims is later applied more broadly in China and then exported abroad. As the China expert Timothy Gross put it to me, Xinjiang provides a testing ground from which they can then try it in larger places. So in other words, Xinjiang is basically a high-stakes high laboratory. Um, even in a country known for its extreme spying on its entire population, the degree of surveillance targeting Uyghurs in Xinjiang is extremely unnerving. Authorities are collecting DNA samples, fingerprints, iris scans, voice samples, and blood types from residents. They're even installing QR codes on Uyghurs' homes to get in instant access to information about them, uh, according to a Human Rights Watch report. So all they have to do is scan a smart door plate on the outside of your house, and right away they know everything they need to know about you. Uh, this summer I reported on a couple of other disturbing initiatives. Um, for one, China started deploying flocks of drones that are disguised as birds to surveil its own citizens, especially in Xinjiang. So these drones have wings that flap so realistically that they're hard to tell apart from actual birds. And animals on the ground often can't make that distinction. Uh, and even real birds in the sky will fly alongside these, these drones, thinking that they are real fellow birds. Um, the drones are really quiet, which helps them avoid detection. And somewhat ironically, this operation's code name is Dove. 
Um, this summer, um, about 11,000 Chinese Muslims headed to Mecca on the annual Hajj pilgrimage. Before leaving the country, some of them were given state-issued tracking devices uh, in the form of smart cards that they had to wear on lanyards around their necks. The devices bear GPS trackers and customized personal data. The state-run China Islamic Association said that they are intended just to ensure the pilgrims' safety, but a lot of human rights experts said this is just one more effort to surveil Muslims. Chinese firms have already sold their surveillance tech to countries like Venezuela, as we mentioned, where Reuters reports that the Chinese telecom giant ZTE is helping the government build a system that will monitor citizens' behavior through a new ID card, which is dubbed the Fatherland card. So the Fatherland database stores your birth date, your family information, your income history, your medical history, your social media presence, your membership in political parties, whether you voted, and many more details, according to Reuters. Uh, China has also sold its surveillance tech to Malaysia, Pakistan, Zimbabwe, may soon gain a foothold in Europe as well. So I think what it's what it is really important to remember is that technology travels. So what happens in China doesn't stay in China. So first and foremost, of course, we should be alarmed by the high-tech horrors in Xinjiang because we all care about human beings and because the world made this vow of never again. And we should also be alarmed because those horrors could pretty soon come to define our lives as well if we don't pay attention now and take meaningful action. So thank you all for being here, for paying attention, and for recognizing the importance of what's happening to the Uyghur mm-hmm. people. Thank you. Thanks so much, Sigal. That was very, very impressive and, uh, and worrying, too, about the future of the world. And uh, let's continue with Sophie. Uh, please, <clears throat> Sophie, I mean, you've been covering human rights in China, not just this issue, but broader. I mean, there are so many human rights problems in China. But as I understand, this has been your major concern lately because this is the major issue that's going on. Uh, can you help us uh, understand and share your views, please? Sure, thanks. Are we, is that audible? Just want to make sure you can hear me. Great, thanks. Um, I'm very glad to be here, Mustafa. Thanks for organizing this, and thanks to Cato for Maybe hosting. Maybe the mic can be a little bit closer to you. Is that... A little bit closer? How's that? Is it... Good? Okay, great. Um, I also want to uh, echo Seagal's thanks to, not just thanks, but also awe of people who have been so courageous in coming forward and sharing their stories with organizations like ours. Um, I think the, the risks that people take uh, are extraordinary, and the stakes are not low. It's not hard to see how the long arm of China now reaches out into places like this. I'm sure there are people sitting in this room wondering whether it's safe to be here or to be seen to be here. Uh, and I think uh, the, the courage is extraordinary. Uh, I will say a couple of quick words about uh, the report that we issued in September uh, of this year looking at what's happening in the political education camps. We, we wanted to make three particular points. One, to really detail what interviewees told us about treatment in the camps, including torture, ill-treatment, psychological torment. Uh, you can read the reports on our website. Uh, the second area we wanted, or the second point that we wanted to make was that life for Uyghurs outside the camps is not a whole lot better than it is inside. You know, there are pervasive restrictions on movement, on association, on speech. Um, it's our view that, that Chinese authorities now impose one of the most pervasive 
uh, architectures of restrictions on Islam of any government in the world, uh, which is probably not the way most people would think about that issue. Uh, but the third area that we wanted to look at really was also about the international ramifications about separated families uh, and, and what the consequences are worldwide, uh, but also increasing harassment of diaspora communities. Um, you know, our top recommendations in a lot of ways are not, uh, are not uh, terribly surprising. The top one, of course, is to close the camps and to free people uh, who are arbitrarily detained. There's, let's be very clear, there's no legal basis whatsoever for these detentions. None. And the Chinese government's uh, justification based on a national security rationale does, literally does not hold water. Um, so we can just stipulate that at the outset. But the second recommendation, set of recommendations really revolves around pursuing accountability for the officials responsible for the establishment and, and, and the management of these camps. And the third area really is about in, ensuring the safety of the diaspora communities worldwide, including investigating harassment, expediting asylum proceedings, and committing to not forcibly returning Uyghurs or other Turkic uh, Muslims to China. So these are sort of the three broad areas of recommendations. And I think my task today is to reflect a little bit on how the international community is doing responding to these kinds of imperatives. And I want to stipulate at the outset, and I'm sorry if some people in this room have already heard me say this a thousand times, but it bears repeating. If we were talking about any other government in the world locking up a million Muslims, I think we can be reasonably confident we would already have a debate at the Security Council, at the establishment of a fact-finding mission, a live discussion about how you would pursue uh, accountability or sanctions. Uh, it's very interesting to think about what's happening in Xinjiang and the international conversation about that relative to uh, what we've seen happen for the Rohingya uh, in Myanmar. Uh, there's, a, there's a shocking and stark difference, and I think it is largely a powerful statement about how influential China is in the world and particularly within the UN system. Uh, that that the, the, I think the road to accountability, sadly, does not, uh, the road to accountability for Xinjiang does not run through the UN. And, you know, there's been enormous media coverage, thanks to, I think, people who've, who've really been very committed to following this story through. And it's a tough one to report because it's not an open reporting environment. And there's certainly government discussions at very high levels of governments and a lot of the right public rhetoric, but we've yet to see... Uh, I hate to report, much significant action. On the issue of closing the camps and actual accountability, the strongest statements by far have come out of uh, the Committee to Eliminate Racial Discrimination Review of China in August and remarks by the new uh, UN High Commissioner for Human Rights, Michelle Bachelet, who explicitly called for access to the region with a view towards uh, assessing options for accountability. But those bodies don't actually have the authority or the power to make those things happen. Uh, they're, they're not binding in any way. Uh, certainly, we want to hear governments follow on with their recommendations. Uh, about a dozen governments, mostly Western, it's not a term I like, but meaning mostly European, US, Australia, Canada, um, did specifically call for an end to arbitrary detention in Xinjiang at China's Universal Periodic Review just a couple of weeks ago. And there's certainly been some very strong calls from the U.S. Congress, from parliaments, individual country parliaments in, uh, in Europe and from the European Parliament in Canada and Australia, you know, urging steps ranging from establishing new positions in foreign ministries to track Xinjiang all the way through to reporting on the harassment of diaspora communities. And I think we can reasonably expect that kind of legislation to be adopted. 
Um, the US has really been the only actor that's spoken clearly about the possibility of things like sanctions uh, or visa bans or using other kinds of tools essentially to raise the price of being involved in these abuses for Chinese government officials. But this has yet to actually happen. Uh, we've been told that we may see movement on these things before the end of the year. It can't come soon enough. Um, but there isn't a single unified, clear diplomatic initiative or vehicle uh, to call on Beijing to close the camps, which is why we've been pushing for the formation of an, of an international coalition to get some governments to come together outside the confines of the UN uh, to push for a vehicle that could last for a few years and serve this purpose of creating some pressure on Beijing. Um, on the subject of ensuring uh, safety for diaspora communities, um, the news is a little bit better, uh, I think partly because some governments have experience dealing with diaspora communities who are being persecuted. Uh, at least two EU member states, Germany and Sweden, have effectively said that they won't send anybody back. Other governments seem to have tacitly made that decision, uh, but aren't announcing it as a, as a formal policy. Um, several governments, most visibly, I think, Australia, Canada, and the U.S., are considering new strategies to reach out to diaspora communities to understand better what, what the harassment they're experiencing looks like and how to protect against it. I think the, the very hard and painful reality, even of those well-intentioned uh, efforts, is that there's very little that the U.S. government, for example, can do about what's actually happening inside China. They can do a better job of tracking harassment here and demanding an end to it you know, with Chinese authorities, but they have little ability to, I think, affect the change uh, that we'd like to see, particularly inside Xinjiang. Why hasn't there been a stronger response? Uh, I think the biggest problem is that the scope and scale of these abuses come at a time when you know, the governments that have some experience dealing with these issues are uh, very out of shape in talking to China about these. Uh, that's the most diplomatic way I can possibly think to, to make that point. Uh, you know, these are governments that have gotten used to over the last, or gotten ground down or reduced to raising these kinds of issues through bilateral human rights dialogues that are largely invisible to most people, especially those who are affected by these issues. Uh, you know, we're constantly begging leaders to raise a particular case or take up this issue when they're visiting. They don't like doing that. You know, but now they find themselves confronted with a mammoth human rights violation, and, and they're not well equipped at this point to figure out how to respond to that. Um, you know, as I said earlier, the UN system is deeply co-opted by China, which obviously closes off certain kinds of avenues. The UN Security Council just spent three days visiting China, uh, and as far as we can tell, nobody said anything about Xinjiang which is deeply problematic. We said in a piece last week that that was a little bit like visiting Robben Island and not saying anything about apartheid. Uh, it's worth pointing out that the Chinese government paid for that trip uh, and that it involved visiting Huawei and the peacekeeping center, uh, which is based at the Chinese People's Police University, which is a, a body that helps generate a lot of the work that we wind up doing. Um, the fact that the OIC, the Organization of Islamic Conference, is, is effectively silent as, an organi as, a, as a body, but also that the community of Muslim-majority states has not really spoken up much is also problematic, I think largely because it makes it easier for Beijing to dismiss criticism about Xinjiang as a, an exclusively Western matter. We've seen a little bit of progress, um, I think, from Turkey 
which, which made an interesting intervention at China's Universal Periodic Review. It, it expressed concern about uh, arbitrary detention of ethnic minorities and essentially made the same point that some of the Western governments did without specifying Xinjiang or Uyghurs, which was sort of an unusual statement. Uh, some new officials in the Malaysian government have expressed concerns about what's happening in Xinjiang and asked for access. Uh, you know, but it's it's not uh, it's not the broad chorus that we need to see to really bring some pressure to bear on Beijing to actually make it change gears. It's possible that the magnitude of abuses in Beijing m might, in a way, I'm trying to be a little bit optimistic here, if one can be about such things, be something of a catalyst. You know, the, this this issue is coming to the fore at a time when. I think some governments and certain international institutions are much more skeptical and pessimistic about Beijing's intentions and its practices. And they're a little more uh, engaged, I think, on issues like these. I've been at some discussions in the last couple of weeks you know, with, with diplomats and, and scholars who focus on issues like trade and security you know, who are often inclined to try to find some point of cooperation to talk about or to express some optimism that China might still converge with international norms. Uh, and that conversation doesn't happen so much, I find now. And, it's part, and, and people, even in those communities who wouldn't normally talk about human rights in Xinjiang, are talking about human rights in Xinjiang. And my hope, or our hope, is that that recognition, <laughs> you know, that, that, that the Chinese government is carrying out massive human rights violations, that those don't stay inside China's borders, may actually lead to some concerted action. But I think until we see vehicles that are dedicated to finding justice for people like Mirren Gold-Torson, we've all still got a lot of work to do. Thank you so much, Sophie. <clears throat> Uh, before the, getting to the questions, I want to go once back to Nuri, and I'll get your, uh, of course, second thoughts too. What should be done? Can you share some thoughts, Nuri? Because you, you've testified to the Congress, you've been a leading advocate of doing something about this issue. Uh, what should governments do, Western governments in particular, do? Thank you very much. That's an important question to uh, talk about. Um, since this uh, crisis started about 20 months uh, 20 month ago, uh, only the United States government has spoken out uh, in its strongest terms, and there's some specific governmental and legislative actions in the, in the process. Uh, we've been talking about Global Magnitsky Act. That's where we should start. Um, it's been in a discussion uh, throughout the government agencies involved in that process. Um, it's been a long time. We heard about it in the past, um, this past summer. Um, we are almost at the end of the year that Global Magnitsky Act uh, sanctions must be done first. And then the second is that, uh, as an American citizen... Uh, Against individuals who are... Individuals who are responsible for... Directing this, yeah. Human rights attack. atrocities. Uh, the fact that Putin took this uh, Magnitsky Act so seriously should be a guideline, or should be a green light for our government. Because it, it is a serious uh, deterrence uh, 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 legal tools that we have in our disposal, at our, at our disposal. Um, the China will get a message. 
if this is implemented. And then the second thing is that there's a legislation in the process being introduced um, by Senator Rubio and others in the Congress uh, that has already received uh, support. That should be uh, hopefully done in this session and that will provide some uh, legislative mandate to the administration to implement very specific uh, policy recommendations, including law enforcement investigating uh, the Chinese influence campaign, harassments of American Uyghur citizens, and also uh, establishing a special coordinator position at the State Department, um, and, and sanctioning uh, the companies uh, helping Chinese with the state security apparatus. Um, and the other issues can be also uh, considered what to, uh, what to do part. One, uh, we're dealing with a, a vast number of Uyghur refugee issues, uh, most of them in the Middle East and Turkey. Uh, Western society is leading, um, uh, hopefully led by the country that has a sizable Uyghur population should step up to the plate and come up with some uh, refugee settlement program. And then um, um, we've been, Hearing some uh, development about uh, like-minded government approach uh, led by the United States, that has been evidence at the UPR review and the, uh, the diplomatic initiative being taken in Beijing to request meeting uh, with the, with the uh, top communist leader uh, in Urumqi, that that should be more uh, in, um, in force. Uh, it shouldn't be only the matter of the United States to speak out on these atrocities. Uh, the countries with a sizable Uyghur population uh, should also come on board, uh, maybe even put a legislation similar to the one being introduced, maybe put, to, uh, put together something similar to global Which are those countries? Uh, Canada, Australia, Germany, France, Netherlands, Norway, Sweden. So all of them, uh, except for Australia and Canada, the others have Turkey not, too, maybe. Uh, Turkey, it's a separate conversation okay. for another. <laughs> we'll have that conversation. <laughs> um, so, and then finally, very important, very specific, we have thousands of students around the world uh, who have not been able to receive funding or, or uh, to be able to receive money to pay their tuition um, because receiving, sending money from to China can be also seen something punishable. So uh, we have a lot of students uh, running out of uh, status, running out of uh, uh, passport validity, and running out of money. So at least universities, uh, no university to this day, have taken up this case, uh, even organized a, a panel discussion like that as far as I'm concerned, uh, except for Indiana University recently. They should at least be able to help the students with the tuition waiver programs mm -hmm. until some governmental action has been taken. So these are the very specific um, doable things and some of them have been in the works. Yeah. So I encourage uh, the governments and individuals, universities and academic institutions to consider helping the mm -hmm. Uyghurs in various ways. Thank you. Thank you very, uh, all sounds very good to me, I mean, as, as, as uh, steps to take. Sigal, do you want to add anything on this? Like what should be done? Um, I would just add, uh, I'm, I'm grateful to say that <clears throat> You mentioned the lack of universities you know, yes. speaking up about this and organizing panels. I will just mention the University of Virginia is um, having an event about this this Friday. This, this week, there's a lot of, of stuff finally happening on this topic, which I'm really glad to see. Um, I'll be speaking at the University of Virginia this Friday on that topic. And so I think we are starting to see like a little bit of that bubbling up, um, which is encouraging, although it's not happening at the pace that I think an emergency like this calls out for. Um, the other thing that really comes to mind for me when I think about when I think about this as a 
a cultural assimilation, um, a, a cultural uh, cleansing or, or genocide, as, as I think you quoted Professor Millward saying, um, is what can we do uh, for those Uyghurs who are in the diaspora to fund and support just programs that will support Uyghur culture and, and especially for, for kids, for young people, um, you know, whether it's, whether it's theater, whether it's, you know, um, language, whatever it is, um, you know, what are the mechanisms that um, people in the diaspora can support to make sure that that culture keeps thriving and staying alive? Mm-hmm. Thanks so much. So if you want to add some thoughts. I'll just add to that list. Uh, I think there's a lot of work to be done. We're trying to do some of it uh, about what companies uh, who are engaged in Xinjiang are doing. Uh, we're obviously particularly interested in Chinese companies that are uh, providing particularly the, the, the technological backbone of repression and making it clear around the world that those companies should be very carefully scrutinized. We actually first wrote about ZTE in 2015 selling voice recognition uh, equipment to the Ethiopian government, which was using it to track uh, essentially conversations about politics and persecute people. But I also think uh, we need a better sense of what foreign companies are doing in Xinjiang. I want to be very clear that the obligation is to is for those companies uh, to be able to offer up a due diligence policy that shows that they are not complicit in or enabling human rights violations. It's not necessarily a violation of international law for them to be there, of course, but the expectation really is about being able to say that you're not contributing to violations, and I don't think enough pressure has been brought to bear uh, on those actors to explain exactly what they're doing and how they're not making the situation worse. Thank you so much. Uh, Now we have some time for questions. And uh, after that, lunch will be served. So um, please, if you want to ask some questions, raise your hand. And uh, please wait for the microphone. And before speaking, please identify yourself. And please keep the remarks brief so everybody can have a say on this. So I see, yes. A hand there. Hi, I'm Swami Ayer of the Cato Institute. Uh, what nobody has mentioned is the issue of Islamic terrorism. There is a reason, I think, why a large number of Western countries are shutting their eyes to these camps. The reason they are shutting their eyes to the camps, as far as I can see, is that there is a belief that there is a threat of pan-Islamic terrorism. And it seems to me that a large number of Western governments would be quite happy if the Chinese came up with various surveillance techniques which managed to actually identify these people. And to that extent, perhaps there is an actual conspiracy of the intelligence agencies of the West cooperating with the Chinese on this particular matter. I would just like your views on, is this not a major factor why the world is ignoring the human rights issue. Sure. Would any of you want to say something on this? Nori? Yeah. Um, Yeah, this is one of the common questions. Uh, In order to uh, address that question, let's look at the motive of the Chinese government setting up these modern-day concentration camps. There are three different ways of uh, uh, look at it, uh, depending on who you talk to. The Chinese government states, as you pointed out, this is for security. so if it is for security, um, 
why would you lock up Uyghur intellectuals, university professors, uh, musicians, um, social elites, philanthropists? How would you justify locking up individuals like that uh, to achieve your so-called security, um, social, uh, social stability or national security? So it makes no sense at all. So anyone um, with a fair mind will see that there's a problem with that uh, justification. And then the other way uh, has been also being discussed is the China's global ambition, uh, which is uh, Belt and Road Initiative or China Dream. Uh, when you look at the map, the Uyghur's homeland uh, makes one-sixth of the China proper. Uh, it, has a border, it borders with seven countries. Uh, of those seven countries are part of the uh, close to 70 countries uh, will be affected by the Belt and Road Initiative. So it has some geopolitical um, uh, context and also the survival of the CCP, because uh, if there's something political upheaval takes place, it will undermine Xi Jinping's leadership. For the Uyghurs, the reason this is happening is because um, the Chinese, you know, as has been described by many scholars, um, uh, that there has a lot of uh, uh, racist character. The Chinese government believes that uh, through its propaganda material, the appreciation of the Uyghur um, culture, tradition, um, is an ideological disease. They call it the cancer that should be weeded out with chemicals. And also, as uh, Segal has been reporting, uh, the Uyghur Islam has been uh, portrayed by the Chinese government as a mental disease. So security concern, mental disease, cancer cell, so you can, you can make your own judgment. Uh, Any thoughts, Sigal? Can I add to that briefly? Sure. Um, I, I want to say, I mean, I think there is, you know, there is this kernel here of, um, you know, of, of public perception of Islam. Um, one thing that was really heartbreaking to me when I, uh, when I published this piece that Anwari mentioned, it, that was called China is treating Islam like a mental illness. My Twitter mentions were flooded with hundreds of people saying, good, good for China. It is a mental illness, and I hope the U.S. starts treating it that way too. Like hundreds of people voicing this. Um, and of course, we all know Twitter attracts, you know. We know, we know the medium, but um, it, was, it was really striking. And I do find it instructive to just do the thought experiment for one moment of, how would the world be reacting if this were happening not to Muslims but to Christians? We've all heard uh, Mike Pence talk about how protecting religious freedom is an, a priority of the Trump administration, and we've seen you know a lot of talk about uh, protecting Christians in the Middle East and Christians in China as well. And you know the administration has been speaking out against what's happening to, to uh, Uyghurs in Xinjiang, but I do find it instructive to just. You know, if you just do that thought experiment for one moment about what would happen if a million Christians were in internment camps, you know, I, I think we can imagine. Sophie, you want to say something? I'll just add very quickly. I mean, states obviously have an obligation to provide public security, but not at the expense of rights. Uh, and to the extent those are curtailed, it has to be proportional to a credible and provable threat. Uh, and that's manifestly not what's happening in Xinjiang. I mean, you know, Nuri's point essentially is, really? You have to lock up children? <laughs> you know, the, I think the Chinese government uses this narrative because it's very convenient 
you know, but to which we say, if you have a credible threat, you're the, you know, you're the government that loves to talk all the time about your fealty to the rule of law. You have a functional legal system. If you have evidence, prosecute people that way. You know, allow them the kind of equality of arms that a, that a functional legal system allows. But to arbitrarily detain an entire population is just doesn't pass the laugh test. Yeah, I would also add that it is counterproductive to say there are terrorists there, so we have to attack the whole population, and there will be more terrorists precisely because you're doing that. I mean, Turkey had the same vicious cycle regarding the Kurdish identity, and uh, various Turkish governments and military governments said, we have to erase Kurdish identity because they're Kurdish terrorists. But, well, there were Kurdish terrorists precisely because you were trying to erase that. And so that turns into a vicious violence, a vicious cycle. And I think uh, if China is really concerned about the extremists, there are some, I mean, Uyghurs, uh, a few of them joined ISIS, which you know, added to the propaganda of uh, China. Uh, but they should begin by granting the human rights that they deserve and then you know, speci specifically looking at some individuals who are really extremists. But I think there is also an influence of communist ideology in this, which regards any religious belief as a superstition that should be really erased. Uh, and, and so piety itself is, is seen as a problem. So uh, therefore, I think the argument about Islamic extremism doesn't uh, really make sense in this case, as in most other cases. So, uh, yes, sir? Yeah. Sure. Yes, that's gentleman there. Hi, I'm Greg Kasky. I'm at the Mercatus Center. Um, to what extent do we believe, and this is for uh, all of you, uh, to what extent do we believe the uh, enhanced repression um, coincides with the Belt and Road Initiative? Of course, Nora, you laid out the timeline. The repression is not a new thing. But of course, um, to the extent that it's known by the world, it has to do with the mass incarceration. Um, and of course, the BRI is a rather uh, recent development uh, compared to the longer history uh, of, uh, of oppression. So that question more broadly, and then also um, a smaller bit, do we have any new information on the condition of Ilim Toti? Nuri, you want to say something on this? Yeah. <clears throat> The Chinese government, under the leadership of Xi Jinping, has uh, taken a, um, a kind of activist um, foreign policy approach with the initiation of Belt and Road Initiative. Um, so far, uh, many countries uh, have not signed on. Uh, were in agreement, were endorsed. The, mostly the European countries have not signed on. The ones have been signed on already uh, starting to see backlash. So, you know, the, um, the China's global ambition is definitely is one of the reasons that this uh, wave of uh, uh, criminalizing the entire population started. But in my personal view, this, is, this has had a lot to do with uh, Chinese government's impatience, as Xi Jinping pointed out, why Uyghurs are still are not a part of Han Chinese civilization. One uh, critical thing that either the government or the people have not really realized is Chinese civilization or Chinese culture is not something universal. As such, the people like the Tibetans and Uyghurs must give up their way of life and, and be part of this human engineering. There is a human engineering taking place today in, in 2018. 
families being separated, as pointed out, Uyghur women being forced to marry Chinese individuals. And there's a psychological warfare is taking place to affect the lives of people like myself and people in, in the homeland. There's also very, very active public opinion campaign is being taken or waged by the Chinese government. You've been, we've been reading a lot of articles published in the uh, Global Times lately, the CCTV uh, 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 interviews being published showing that happy, happy Uyghurs in the camps. And also uh, labeling, uh, the gentleman mentioned, this labeling campaign has also been very effective. So they've been attacking the Uyghur identity in a multiple front, diplomatically, domestically, economically, socially. So um, the Uyghur people feeling suffocated. Uh, not only the ones in the homeland, but the people outside of China feeling to the extent depressed. Uh, for a variety of reasons, and one of them is there's no global uh, condemnation and governmental actions to rectify uh, this, uh, these atrocities. Any thoughts, Sophie? I would just add to that. I'm sitting here thinking, what would happen if we took BRI out of the equation, right? Would you would you see a different response? And I'm not. I, I'm 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 thinking out loud here. Um, I'm not convinced you would necessarily see a different response. And if you, if you think, for example, about some of Chen Chuanguo's policies uh, in Tibet before he shifted over to Xinjiang and things like homestays and you know, these very sort of personal, intrusive policies that were clearly designed to produce political loyalty. And obviously, I mean, there are BRI implications for Tibet too, but I think they're not nearly what they are with respect to Xinjiang. I, I think there's at least as much a project of forcing political loyalty as there is concern about a certain level of security for investment in the region. Um, but but that's, that is somewhat speculative. Um, with respect to Ilham Toti, uh, nobody goes to Chinese prisons to get well. <laughs> I, I think his health is in jeopardy. Uh, the, 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 the kind of access uh, that his family members have been granted is, to put it politely, not in conformity with Chinese law or obligations under international law. I don't know if either of you have information to add on that. I do not have any uh, personal information, but uh, Senator Rubio and uh, Congressman Smith stated in public that uh, Ilham Tohti will be nominated for a Nobel Peace Prize next year. Mm -hmm. Okay, more questions? Uh, yes, someone, yes, yes, the lady there, second row. Hi, thank you so much. Um, I'm Julie Bala from George Washington University, and I was just wondering if there is any evidence of underground networks to help Uyghur families escape from camps or escape from communities that are particularly oppressive. I haven't heard anything in the news other than you know, the passports being taken away and things like that. Nuri, maybe you can say something yeah. on this. <clears throat> um, there are only a handful of people managed to leave the camps, uh, and most of them hold foreign passports. The Kazakhstan citizens, the Mihrigul Tursun that I use as an example in my remark, is an Egyptian citizen. Yeah. So... I don't think that I, I even personally following these events uh, daily, hourly, uh, have not heard anyone uh, with the Chinese passport 
was able to leave the camp and able to travel to outside of the country. But there, 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 there is a demand for societal support. Uh, Uyghurs are going through a trauma. Uh, uh, I can't get into the specifics of some individuals, but uh, I do know a handful of people, even our society, American Uyghur business executives taking a leave of absence from their work and seeking psychological help. Mental health issues have been a major issue. Um, Sigal has mentioned several Uyghurs came forward, but there are many others. I have one gentleman sitting right here, a Radio Free Asia reporter whose family has also been affected. Um, there are lots of them. You know, if you deal with this kind of psychological trauma every day, it, it negatively affects your life. It, it destroys your no, uh, normalcy, a sort of normalcy. So um, it, there should be like the churches and uh, uh, Jewish temples, um, charity organizations uh, should come, come forward and help and provide health and psychological uh, uh, counseling services to uh, various communities. Um, I'd be happy to put that um, organization uh, and make an introduction to the right person. And Sigal, I think The Atlantic just recently made a wonderful docu short documentary about the networks of Uyghurs in the West and how they are threatened here as well. You would like to maybe say something on that? Yeah, I just I would love to mention that. Um, so The Atlantic, just yesterday, we released a nine-minute documentary about how Uyghurs in the U.S., uh, even, even once they reach U.S. soil, are still being harassed and threatened and surveilled by China. And um, one thing that has struck me as... I was kind of getting to know the Uyghur community here in the, the Washington area is the role of universities. Um, it's not really an, a, um, kind of an underground network, as I think you put it, but um, the role that universities can play in, um, you know, whether it's inviting people to the U.S. or just keeping people here once they're here. Um, so I know of scholars who have been brought over, uh, Uyghur scholars who, who you know, are now have, now have positions at U.S. universities and that helps kind of stay here. Um, one young Uyghur I was speaking to um, who's studying, I think he said cyber, cyber security um, here at a U.S. university. And I said, oh, so are you interested in cybersecurity? And he said, no, not at all. I hate this topic. It's super boring. Um, I just applied for this so that uh, U.S. universities, I, I figured U.S. universities um, would, would accept me if I applied into this graduate program. And I was just desperate to do something to be in the U.S., um, and he's now applying for a refugee status here. But, um, it, it, you know, it, it made me think about the role that our academic institutions can play in giving a, giving a space to people who are affected and then potentially helping, um, you know, other ways we can help as they apply for asylum status here. That's, I'll just add, that's a great piece waiting to be written if you look at some of the schools in you know, the U.S. and in Western Europe who really, you know, in a way kind of made a name for themselves as havens for refugees and intellectuals. Um, I don't have particular information about underground networks, but your question also makes me think back to the gentleman's questions about the BRI that, you know, I think when you see a government limit access to passports, you know <laughs> that's, that's not for a good reason. And we documented this actually with respect to Tibetans a year or so ago, um, that, that effectively the restrictions that are in place for Tibetans to get passports are so off the charts, you really can't get one. And I think when we saw new requirements go into place uh, in Xinjiang for people to get passports requiring um, biodata, various kinds of biodata, 
uh, that too was an indicator of a serious problem. And it's worth pointing out that it's precisely those kinds of, of targeted state gestures against a particular ethnic or religious community or some other sort of distinct subnational community um, that comes up quite frequently in all sorts of different sets of indicators about the likelihood of ethnic-based conflict um, or, or persecution of particular communities. Okay, thank you. More questions? Uh, there are ladies at the very back, please. I mean, they can decide who's going to, or they can do both one by one. But. Um, so my question is, I'm from American University. I'm a student at American University. Sorry, um, can you hold the microphone a bit closer, please? Yes, I'm a student at American University. Um, do you see U.S. human rights intervention as a potential trade-off um, in terms of trade and other economic ties that the U.S. has with China? Okay, we can get the other question too, yeah. Um, I'm Jada Aguilarius. Uh, I'm also a student at American University, and I'm also leading Amnesty International in my school. Um, one thing I wanted to ask was um, what kind of activities you would expect from students, especially in these universities, to voice the, I mean, besides you know organizing events to voice these human rights violations. And the other question I wanted to ask was, um, you mentioned you know the university is offering a waiver for students attending um, to them, um, but how can that be manageable given that there are so many students with similar situations from many countries? Mm -hmm. Okay, we have two people, three questions. So you want to address any? Can I speak uh, to the first one? Sure, yeah. Um, you asked about trade-offs between human rights and trade. Um, I just uh, wrote an article about this for The Atlantic yesterday. Um, this is a, a really great question, especially for this week when President Trump and uh, President Xi are going to be uh, discussing trade at the G20. Um, a lot of uh, Uyghurs and experts I've spoken to are really concerned that you know, on the one hand, we've seen the Trump administration speaking out uh, very forcefully uh, about what's happening in Xinjiang, which is great. Um, and I have no doubt that a lot of uh, people who are doing that sincerely are, are concerned about the people there. Um, there's also concern, though, that the, the sort of rise in human rights rhetoric that we've been hearing about China uh, in the past few months uh, from U.S. government officials, that that human rights rhetoric is being kind of instrumentalized. Um, the U.S. has been engaged in this kind of broader offensive against China on multiple fronts. There's accusations of cyber theft, of election meddling, you know, you name it. Um, and so there's, there's concern that the human rights thing is just being seen as one more, you know, kind of one more stick that we can beat China with. Um, that's worrisome because if, uh, if human rights is just a negotiation tool, well, then we can, you know, if, if President Trump makes a deal on trade and we don't need to negotiate anymore, then that negotiation tool can be dropped at any moment. Um, so that's, I think, a real concern on a lot of uh, people's minds, especially this week. And, uh, you know, I always feel like the, 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 proof is in, in the, the proof is in the pudding, right? So if people care very much about this human rights issue, not as something to be instrumentalized, but on its own merits... Um, let's see what happens if and when some kind of trade deal is, you know, we move towards a trade deal, 
let's see if people continue to criticize China on the human rights front as loudly, or if we start to see that criticism go quiet. Great. You want to say something, Sophie? No. Yeah, I, I can't improve on that answer. Um, I think we'll we'll have some clarity within the next couple of weeks as we get through the summit in Argentina, and whether we see announcements about you know Glomag sanctions will will tell us you know how serious this administration really is. Uh, it certainly wouldn't be the first to uh, instrumentalize human rights. Uh, you know, and we've watched this administration turn in appalling performances on things like the murder of Jamal Khashoggi. And let's let's be very clear that you know it's not a fabulous track record. Um, you know, on the issue of what students can do, always lovely to be in the room with extended family from Amnesty. Um, you guys just did a brilliant piece about Google in China and Project Dragonfly. It's fantastic. Um, but what's what can students do? Um, we should all answer this. Uh, reach out to your fellow students who may have very different views or no views at all on these issues. Um, ask your universities the precise nature of their relationship with Chinese government entities. Uh, call your members of Congress here and at home. Uh, what else? Those are, those are my three top ideas for you off the top of my head. Nice discussions and educational outreach. Yeah, I, I, think there's, I think there's a lot to be said for student-driven outreach um, on campuses, um, you know, both to people who've never heard of Xinjiang before and people who might have very different views of it. I think, you know, the advantage of, of sitting here in Washington is that at least in principle, those kinds of conversations can take place. They certainly couldn't in other places. Um, and, and to try to make best use of that space. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Um, in, in response to that, uh, what, what the students should do, there's, there's a very easy thing that, that, can, that you guys could do. Uh, there's a legislation, uh, as I mentioned, the Uyghur Human Rights Policy Act of 2018, uh, which will be voted sometime uh, in the next few months. You can call your representative and ask for uh, a support, a senator or member of, yes? Get a bunch of people to sign a petition supporting it and deliver it in person. Since yeah. you're here in Washington, and also you can call the White House, uh, ask to you know ask the government to uh, speed up the process in the Global Magnitsky Act. Um, these are the quite easy, doable thing. Uh, and then uh, for the trade, I have a slightly different uh, take on that. Um, I am hopeful uh, that the United States government will not back down on this run. Uh, if you listen or watch or read uh, Vice President Mike Pence's speech of November, uh, October 14th, there are about one page, very specific, powerful language being used in that speech. I don't think that uh, the Chinese will take anything that this administration says seriously uh, after making that kind of policy shift speech, expressing very strong, uh, specific concerns about the Uyghurs. I, I, and one, also, I'm not a trade lawyer, but I don't think this trade discussion will be handled, will, uh, managed uh, to reach an agreement anytime soon. The difference is so big. I don't want to bore you with this uh, trade dispute issue, but it's not a matter of one uh, G20 meeting. So I'm hopeful uh, there's something uh, significant, uh, specific, uh, will be taken uh, by the U.S. government, uh, hopefully in the very hopefully in the near future. But um, in, in fact, actually, I'd like this 
Uyghur issue to be linked to the human, uh, trade issue because that's how you get Chinese attention. The Chinese government pays attention to two things. One is security discussion. The other one is economic discussion. If you link, link the Uyghur issue to the economic discussion or trade discussion, you may be a, actually able to uh, get some concession from the Chinese. That's my mm -hmm. slightly different view. <laughs> yeah, I would add that it is, I think, very important for Western governments to stand behind human rights on a principled way, because otherwise, I mean, that doesn't always happen. Uh, otherwise, there are people in the world, in the Islamic world, for example, who will say, yeah, well, human rights is nothing but just a Western propaganda and a lie or a tool to put pressure on the governments they don't like or for the societies they want to attack and so on and so forth. That's not correct. but. Uh, actually, it's, it's counterproductive, and that's why it's important for Western governments and Western liberals to be principled on these issues, and then we will have a probably better world. I mean, <laughs> so more questions, please? Uh, yes, the gentleman here in the first front, yeah. Sure. No, no, no. No, no welcome. I'm uh, Peter Humphrey, an Intel analyst. I think you've made the most important point of all. This is a great way to create thousands more jihadists. And the... Uh, Communist Party must have the IQ of a wombat not to, not to receive that. I'm wondering if there might be a way to establish a campaign where, uh, to the benefit of the US, uh, it becomes a champion of Muslims for change and uh, approaches the several Muslim countries and says, be nice if you guys spoke out in defense of your brethren. This would be particularly uh, important in, in Central Asia. Uh, and I think the key player here is Kazakhstan. It would be amazing if we could persuade Nazarbayev to say, China, you gotta let go of my, of my compatriots, and you gotta let them come to Kazakhstan if they want to, or there's gonna be no belt and no road through Kazakhstan. I think we could pull that off. Does anybody else agree? Thank you. Um, so could Kazakhstan or Central Asiatic Repu other republics can play a role. I mean, they themselves don't have terribly great, you know, human rights records. But uh, this on this issue, you know, uh, they can play a maybe helpful role. Yeah, I agree with your uh, recommendation. Kazakhstan is a very critically important, critically important country, uh, as far as the size of the country, as far as far as the importance of the uh, uh, importance of. It's membership in SEO, Shanghai Cooperation Organization that China and Russia initially started. And also, uh, I'd like to give a credit to Kazakhstan. Uh, recently, a uh, Chinese citizen of a Kazakh individual thought asylum, and they released her uh, instead of uh, repatriating that individual uh, with a history of uh, conducting similar uh, cooperation with the Chinese. Um, Based on the estimated figure that we heard, uh, there's a sizable Kazakh citizens are currently sitting in uh, the camps. So, uh, yeah. No, no, not only the 10% the, the is the Uyghurs, but there's a Kazakh citizens. No, 10% of the attorneys are Kazakh. 10% of the people in the camps are Kazakh? Yes. Are you? I've seen the number show that that I don't know if you, um, uh, that I cannot substantiate, I don't. Okay. okay. Uh, anyways, yeah, you're right that the Kazakhstan and other countries that have a, a cultural, linguistic, uh, geographical connection to the Uyghurs, and also the, the citizen being affected should step up. Yeah, I agree with, with that recommendation. Yeah, thank you, any other questions? Yes, sir. 
uh, Hayden Wetzel. Are there similar um, programs in the nearby Muslim uh, areas of China, Qinghai, Ningxia, Gansu? A question. The question is about whether uh, we've seen similar uh, camps or, or programs of re-education in other Muslim areas like Ningxia or Gansu. We have not, uh, we have not yet identified any camps, uh, certainly nothing on the scale that we're seeing in Xinjiang. Uh, there are some policy, in the, there's some, some new policies have been adopted in some of those other regions that concern us, although at the moment those are more about restrictions on movement uh, than anything else. But it's certainly something that we're watching closely because obviously one worries about other Muslim communities. The lady there, yeah. Okay. Hello, my name is Louise Dimienden. I'm with the American. Thanks so University. much. Can you hold it closer a little yeah. and be it's a little better? louder? Yeah, it's a little better. Okay. Um, my question is, how much? Sorry, we didn't get your name. And oh, my name is Louise Demirden. I'm with the American University. Um, Thank you. My question is, how much discussion about this topic is there in the Chinese population? Is the Chinese population included at all in this process? And my other question is, who is actually upholding these camps? Is there special police forces? Is this the military? Or who actually does this job? Because there must be a lot of people doing this, right? Yeah, that's a, that's a great question. When such things happen, generally what the population here is, is that our glorious military and intelligence is fighting the evil people out there in Oceania. Or, uh, but is that the case in, in China? Uh, Sophie, maybe can we can... Let me take the second question. Um, our interviewees described to us a mix of uh, uh, public security bureau, meaning the police. Uh, in one or two cases, people referred to Guobao, who are the state security. Um, in others, it was local party officials. Um, but many people weren't really able to even know when they were being held in the camps precisely who the people running them were or sort of what their, what their institutional affiliation was. Um, I, I think in one or two cases what people were essentially describing to us were, you know, low-ranking local party officials. Um, you know, maybe someday the Chinese government will make all of this information publicly available and we can know. I would just add that there are, um, you know, you can, you can see clearly online just the evidence of propaganda um, campaigns in China. So uh, even I think as recently as I want to say it was a month or two ago I saw, um, you can see these stories on WeChat that uh, the Chinese government is publishing about, for example, the, the homestays um, of uh, Han people who are coming into Uyghur homes and, and staying with them to essentially surveil them um, and then report on their behavior. Uh, and, and these... Um, as well as as well as kind of the assignment of fictional relatives. So when someone comes stay at your house, you're told to call them your sister or your brother. Um, 
And there's there are a lot of like propaganda pictures uh, on WeChat of you know these these fictional relatives exchanging gifts and playing sports together and these programs being depicted as a great success. Um, so that that propaganda is very much out there to the, the Chinese population. Nori? Yeah, I, I, you know, I read Chinese. Um, I regularly um, go through some websites to see what they've been talking about. But uh, what I've been seeing is mostly a, a portrayal of happy minorities and promotion of uh, interracial marriage and this relative homestay uh, program. Uh, generally, Chinese government don't, you know, keeps this kind of information from the general public. Uh, there's also, as I pointed out earlier, uh, the Chinese government is very successful, um, you know, in its effort to create this imaginary state enemy in Uyghurs uh, through state-controlled media throughout the year, particularly since 2001. And also this labeling, uh, it's not a free society, uh, it's an authoritarian society, there's no pre-press. Uh, people generally, the Han Chinese people generally go about with their own lives. Uh, because A, the image is already created there. There's no interest in a discussion because of the labeling. So I, I have not seen any sympathetic uh, uh, a position taken by anyone inside China uh, by my own research in social media. Uh, on the major newspapers, you don't see anything like that other than its justification of showing uh, Uyghur uh, individuals learning skills in those camps and sending money to their family members. Uh, there's a video interview along with an interview by the uh, chairman of the uh, autonomous regional government. Great. Other questions? Uh, there is a gentleman there. Uh, okay, the gentleman here. My question is that uh, uh, how do you compare what's happening in China against Muslim, Uyghurs, or others different than what's happening here in this country, in the United States of America, in Israel, <clears throat> in Europe, in every other country that you call it Western civilization uh, have been doing? Uh, whether against Muslim, even right now we sit against asylum seekers, but you guys are talking about the children being put in the, separated from their parents, that what they are doing to the children. Right now, yesterday in the, at the border, and no, none of you I said that to talk about these things. Or they are, what are they doing in Africa? Thank you, sir. Um, Sigal, maybe you want to... You actually referred to the mm -hmm. uh, separation of families in the U.S., which was yeah. quite criticized by a lot of people, yeah. You know, I think one wants to be careful not to draw easy equivalencies, but um, as I mentioned, I, I think that we had a major national outcry this summer uh, and, and continuing, you know, over President Trump's policies at our southern border, um, in terms of family separation. And I'm not the only one to kind of draw that connection to what's happening in China. Um, the Washington Post editorial board, for example, explicitly drew that connection. And so, you know, what, what happens in different countries under, in different contexts, it's, I, I always find sometimes we, 
in some ways we can a little bit shoot ourselves in the foot if we try too much to draw too tight a parallel uh, because it then becomes too easy for people to come and say, no, here's all the ways in which it's actually really different. Um, but I think you, you raise an important point that one can't ignore certain similarities. Sophie, you want to say something? Yeah, just just two quick thoughts. One, first of all, I, I, I would encourage you to look at our website. We work globally, uh, including looking at human rights violations here in the U.S., so we address many of the issues or the, the regions of the world that you've just mentioned. Um, I, I, too, am frustrated by some false equivalencies that have, that have gotten made about Xinjiang, partly because it's a very convenient argument for the Chinese government. And maybe one of the ones that's worth pointing out, uh, that certainly the Chinese government delegation uh, at the Human Rights Council earlier this month deployed was to say, you know, we're only doing in Xinjiang what the West has done with the radicalization programs, uh, referring primarily to ones in Europe. Uh, and I will state very clearly that my organization has been very critical of many aspects of those programs, but there's no comparison. Right, there's just none. You know, there is a modicum of due process. You get to have a lawyer. You aren't completely cut off from your family or the outside world. Um, you know, so for the Chinese government to try to say that its detention of a million Uyghurs is the same as the kinds of de-radicalization programs that you see run by some European governments, I, I think there's just no real basis for comparison. Thank you, Sophie. And you want to say something? Yeah, really yeah. quick. Um, <clears throat> I agree with everything being said about this issue. Um, every time when I look around and talk to people, um, I get one quick question. Where is the liberals in the society on this issue? When you look at it, you most of the time see uh, people from the Republican Party or in the conservative uh, uh, side of the political spectrum. And that kind of this kind of false equivalency may have been used to make them stay away and also express their grievances against Trump, Trump administration. Uh, and one important thing, yes, there's some problems here, but this problem in China does not allow the Uyghurs to go to the courts or even not being told what crime that the Chinese government is accusing them of committing. And also there's no access to lawyers, there's no pre-press. So it's, it, is, it is completely irrelevant comparison in my mind. I'm sorry for being a little bit more direct. Uh, yeah, but um, but you know this this is a separate issue. This is a very different issue. Uh, this issue does not require any uh, comparison or uh, apology. Thanks so much, and uh, <clears throat> thank you. Thanks. I mean, I should. I would like to also add that uh, that is true. I mean, human rights are violated by various governments around the world, sometimes by Western governments, and we should stand up against all of them in every case. Here at Cato, we are very critical of the anti-immigrant, for example, uh, attitudes in the United States. Our colleagues have documented that there's no, the, the hysteria against immigrants, the paranoia about them is completely unfounded, for example. We have programs criticizing police brutality in the US, uh, and we have events criticizing Western governments when they violate human freedom as well. But I do agree that uh, there is still a difference between certain Western governments that are acting illiberal, authoritarian, and North Korea, for example. And that's why people from that part of the world are still migrating, escaping to this part of the world. And, and we should try to raise the bar here, but also should see that, you know, still, you know, most liberal democracies in the West with all their flaws are uh, still comparably, I think, more preferable. 
Uh, well, thank you so much for being here. Please uh, welcome me, uh, join me in uh, thanking our speakers. And uh, this is, yeah.